Blog Talk Radio. Possibly the last great era on the planet Earth. I'm Van Carter. Humans have overrun the planet like vermin. And like vermin, we've destroyed everything we've touched. This project has been named Suicide Earth because it's an apt title for what's really happening. There's no going back. We've already done too much damage. It's actually murder-suicide, since we're killing so much of the world along with, ultimately, ourselves. This is not hyperbole. I've been, through these interviews, trying to identify my own feelings surrounding this carnage. I've been frustrated. I've been hopeless. I've talked to Paul Ehrlich, who warned us over 50 years ago. I've talked to Solomon Goldstein Rose, a millennial, who thinks we can still fix it. One increased my hopelessness. One gave me a reason for some hope. Today, I'm talking with an author who is hope-free. Dar Jamail says, all we have left before us is grief and grieving for what we have done, because it's mostly done already. He's our first eyewitness. He has seen firsthand. And after reading his book, it's clear we are no longer talking about what we're doing to Earth. It's about what we've already done. He's seen glaciers that he saw 20 years ago. He's visited the Great Barrier Reef that he visited 20 years ago. He's been to the Amazon and the Everglades and the Arctic for the purposes of bringing us this book. It's called The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. And folks, the end of ice is the end of us. Dar, I don't know if I can get to hope free. Well, it's really good to be with you, Van, and thank you very much for having me on your show. And, well, for me, it's been a a long process to getting to being hope-free, and and I use that term borrowing it from uh, Canadian author and storyteller Stephen Jenkinson, who talks about, you know, when we talk about the climate crisis, you're kind of faced with a decision like you just brought up, you either become hopeless or hope. Uh, hopeful and and there's this pressure on us to always kind of end our conversations or our articles or our books about the, the you know what's a very intense depressing topic with some kind of hope and the reality is uh, I think that's childish at this stage of the game when we really look out and honestly survey how far along we already are the feedback loops that are already kicked in the amount of warming that's already baked into the system and all we need to do is look out our windows at the summer upon us here in the western United States to uh, get an idea of what, what we're talking about here. So this forces us to, you know, find a new way of living. We have to kind of abandon this idea that, oh, things are going to just go on in perpetuity and accept the fact that we're going to be witnessing a whole lot of loss and a lot of endings from now on. And then how do we find ground to stand on uh, living on this new planet? Your life has been an adventure, a true adventure. You're an award-winning journalist who went to Iraq on your own dime, one of the rare unembedded newsmen there. 
You covered America's occupation of that country and wrote three books about it. How did the turn to the environment come up? Well, largely uh, because, well, there's really two reasons. One, before I started working as a journalist, I was living in Alaska doing a whole lot of mountaineering and spending a lot of time up in Denali National Park climbing and volunteering with the Park Service. And and so I was witnessing firsthand back in the mid-'90s just the dramatic recession of glaciers and these dramatic uh, weather and climate shifts up there, like no snow on the ground in Anchorage over Christmas, this kind of thing. And it was already happening, and and that obviously wouldn't go away uh, as far as in my psyche. And so once I went off to war in 2003 to work as a journalist in Iraq, it was always kind of there in the background, and I always knew it was the big story, and it was something I was going to want to come back to because so many of these places that are near and dear to my heart were changing before our eyes. Um, And then the other factor was after being – basically a full-time war correspondent for just about a decade. I uh, hit, uh, you know, psychic fatigue uh, with that devastation and was really ready to shift into a different topic, Uh, obviously equally intense, but a little bit less immediately life-threatening and uh, less PTSD-inducing in a way. So it was really those two factors, but really I would say even more the, the former of just, you know, this is, as you know, you know, hence the really the whole basis of your program. I mean, this is the story of our lifetime and, and every lifetime going forward now. Yeah, yeah. I, what I'm going to be doing is uh, I'll just throw some of your quotes at you from time to time to kind of prompt you. I, I don't need to be doing that much talking, but you, you started out actually with John Muir and talking about losing precious days, and I thought that was just uh, – so apropos, because uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, you, you, the news begins, and they talk about politics, and and they talk about shootings, and and uh, and and inside, I'm screaming. You should be talking about what's going on, the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, and that's really. you really just encapsulated how I felt for years uh, leading up to even before I started working on this book. I, I, the book's essentially a culmination of 10 years of working as a climate uh, journalist. And uh, that was my daily life of writing stories about various uh, climate impacts and doing research and talking to experts. And, and then, you know, the, the, the dominant mainstream media is for the most part talking about, as you said, politics and other things like this. And while, while certainly relevant, uh, you know, meanwhile, in the background, we have this story that's just building by the day that really is about will humans even continue to be able to exist on this planet inside of possibly 100 years, uh, given the severity and the, and the acceleration of all of the feedback loops that are already uh, in motion. So it was a really uh, uh, quite the psychological tightrope to walk of walking around carrying all this information which every climate journal every serious climate journalist has to do basically looking at we're looking at the end of the world here you know no more coral reefs inside of 50 years most likely i i think that's very conservative i think it's more like inside of 20 years the 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 rate of acceleration uh, that we're seeing with warming uh we're looking at 
the loss of, you know, so many different forests around the world, probably inside of 100 years. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the sixth mass extinction, as I'm sure you and uh, Paul Ehrlich put out. And all of these things happening, and, and then um, yet you still have the dominant culture kind of going forward, like, okay, well, we can fix this, and we're going to go on, and we have time to phase this out by 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And uh, meanwhile, you're sitting there staring at the house burning, and it's it's a kind of crazy making experience. And and I imagine, given what you're addressing in your show, you're you're living with that too. And I think anybody really looking closely at this topic on a regular basis must experience that. You know, it's like you know the kind of a a flippant joke I make about it is like you know we a friend and I earlier today were talking looking at Lake Mead and what happens when like me basically runs out of water and doesn't have enough water anymore to generate electricity for all these different states and cities that depend on it. And, and, you know, we're, we're looking at major, major crises playing out in front of us in real time here. And, and then you have a large part of the dominant culture that's more uh, uh, concerned about like what they want on their pizza. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I I talked, I, I, I did an interview with Mitchell Thomas show and he, he actually kind of added to the the definition of Anthropocene because he pointed out that it's not just uh, the the human action upon things, but it's that the humans themselves uh, uh, and and with with their with the tech and the personal devices, uh, the instant information. And you making the same point that the price for this is a total disconnection from the planet. That's exactly right, and that that is really, I think, the core cause of the climate crisis, because if we were all living closer to the planet, uh, we'll go all the way back to indigenous folks, that first of all, we wouldn't treat her the way we do, because we would understand that what we do to the planet, we do directly to ourselves. Uh, You cannot abuse the planet and pollute and contaminate and do that uh, as, as a way of life and as so-called the cost of doing business and think that that's not going to come back around and affect you, uh, not just with pollutants in all of our bodies now and different chemicals, but, but what we've actually, we have literally geoengineered the planet already by the amount of CO2 that we've injected into the atmosphere and how much of that uh, warming it and CO2 itself has been absorbed into the oceans, into acidification and everything that comes along with that. We just, we can't, we can't live the way that we have been and, and think that it's not going to affect us. But that, that is exactly what we have because of this disconnection that if, if I was living on land and I had to go out and forage for my food or hunt for my food every day and, you know, carry water from a stream to drink, I'm going to be behaving very differently with the earth as opposed to if I can just go to a store and buy whatever I need and turn on a faucet and have water, right? There's a disconnect. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things I talk about more towards the end of in my book is we have to start with reconnecting. And no matter what is going to happen on the planet going forward and how bad things become, I think before we can really talk about solutions and but by way of solutions i mean adaptation and maybe a little bit of mitigation i'm not talking about we can stop uh, most of what's already baked into the system but 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 if we're going to orient ourselves in a right way to behave accordingly in this crisis that we're in i think we have to start with making sure our feet are on solid ground 
and, 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 and that way we can have a clear mind. And that starts with just getting really, really reconnected yeah. in, uh, with the planet so that we can actually see and feel what's happening and then behave accordingly. Ecological education. Right. Yeah. Right. I got a couple That's of exactly quotes it. that I, a couple of quotes I, I took out, and I'll, I'll be reading them every now and then. Uh, I just like the way you put some things. Uh, Earths, species, glaciers, rivers, lakes, and forests are, in the blink of a geological eye, falling into oblivion. And another one, I could feel the cataclysmic impact of the human race's industrial-scale consumerism on the earth. We had defiled the biosphere, and we were past the point of no return. Let's go to, let's go to Alaska. Uh, you, uh, well, first, let's, let's check Mount Rainier. You, you said that you saw Mount Rainier uh, 22 years before you went back and climbed it again and, and uh, saw some differences. Yeah, I, uh, you know, mountains are my passion. It's really the place I prefer to go to really connect in deeply with the earth. And anytime I need to get recentered, you know, that's what, where I'll go. Um, and, and more often than not now by myself. And, uh, but I, I had climbed Mount Rainier the first time back in the mid nineties and, and then went back at the very beginning of working on this book in 2016. And I went up, uh, uh, the same route that I had done the first time I climbed it. And, uh, but what to my shock, and I write about this in the book that I came around this area, probably around 12,000 feet, Mount Rainier is a little over 14,000 feet. And the old route, which basically went around this kind of little rock buttress and then, excuse me, carried on up a glacier. Literally that glacier had receded and melted so much that the route was, shifted further to uh, the left instead of going around to the right, because when I looked right, uh, there was about a 300-foot drop down to where the glacier now was. And so literally it had receded that much, and it, it really felt like a gut punch, just like, okay, we all know the glaciers are receding. We all know uh, the, the generalities of what happens when the atmosphere is warming that, that uh, quickly, but then you know, to really have an intimacy with a place. And, and this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about around the disconnection, that, that contrary to a disconnection, if you have an intimacy with the land, then when something that dramatic happens to that glacier or the land or a forest or whatever you're talking about, then you're going to feel it and you're going to notice it. And it's going to affect you personally, just like, you know, if, if something happened to, to a loved one, that you're close with you're gonna you're gonna feel that that's gonna have a deep emotional and spiritual impact on you and that's that's what i ran into consistently around the book whether it was that experience on mount rainier or numerous experiences i had up in alaska and how about matanuska glacier on, right right so uh same thing it's this glacier up uh it's about a two and a half hour drive outside of anchorage and when I lived up there, we used to, uh, with the Mountaineering Club, we would go out there and ice climb in the fall, sort of like the early season primer for winter ice climbing. And everybody would go out there, and there was a parking lot. You'd park, and then in the morning you'd walk up on to the toe of the glacier and set up, you know, some rope systems and get ready to practice some ice climbing in crevasses. And uh, I went back there, and that same parking area 
they had to, there was a company now running the access to the glacier and they had to keep moving the parking area further and further close uh, to, towards the glacier because the glacier was receding so fast. They were basically just trying to keep up with it. And so from where I used to go to where the glacier now was, was pushing, I think it was over half a mile away, which in the number of years we're talking about is not a very long time. And it just did really, really amazing acceleration of the, the rate of loss of ice. I mean, these are glaciers that essentially haven't changed much in 7,000 years. Right, because we're talking about Alaska, you know. I mean, and that's, that's the thing that really astounded me, living there and watching the changes even in the mid-'90s and then going back uh, more recently, is that, you know, it's, uh, Alaska has the stereotypes and, and kind of the, the myths around it that it does for a reason of the extremely cold place particularly dark in the in the winters for a reason it's it, it is those but more accurately now as it was those things that even now in the far northern arctic way up into the arctic circle uh you know we have permafrost everywhere and most people understand what that is it's permanent ice underneath a thin layer of organic material on top of it and fr- ice laden with frozen organic material and it's called permafrost because it never thaws well that name uh, no longer fits but it is all thawing now let's 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 get into permafrost uh, permafrost later on because i i consider that to be a big and scary topic uh somebody in your book and i didn't write down the name i'm sorry but said said uh, talking about all of this is is this is an explosion a nuclear explosion of geological change we've shoved it into overdrive and taking our hands off the wheel. Uh, you, 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 uh, you say Alaska has 100,000 glaciers. They're losing 50 a year now. Right. And that, again, just that that might not sound like a huge amount, give, you know, 50 out of 100,000, but um, first of all, we're talking about enormous, enormous amounts of ice. And then second of all, Again, uh, at the risk of being redundant, uh, we're talking about Alaska. You know, this is, you know, like you said, we haven't, you know, th- these things ebb and flow from season to season, but but over time to be consistently losing this much ice is uh, one of these major, major alarm bells that to me should be uh, really uh, uh, just having everybody in, in, in great, great alarm. The amount of ice that we're losing Globally, and, and Alaska is also uh, uh, indicative of this. But the amount that we're losing globally is is also really, really shocking. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, we're talking about seventy nine thousand square kilometers of of ice and uh, in um, in Anchorage. I'm, I'm sorry, in Alaska, and and uh, we're losing literally at this point. Uh, thousands of those on an annual basis, the, the amount of acceleration that's happened up there. So uh, another thing Glaciers contain me, almost when, 75% of all the freshwater on the planet, right? They do. They do. And, and that's another impact that it, I got into in the book that was, uh, I knew a little bit about it, but then really talking with the U.S. Geological Survey scientists about this, learning how important they are for farming, that they store water so that once the, in a lot of the parts of the world where they're located, once the winter snowpack melts off, 
the glaciers are really the only water available for farming and irrigation and drinking water for millions of people around the globe for several months towards the end of every summer. So once those go, then we have major, major water crises. You went to a lot of places uh, that that you hadn't been before, uh, but but you but the places that you went to, you always uh, you talked to the the people who had lived there all of their lives, and you talked to the local scientists who had been uh, who had uh, who'd been seeing all of this uh, all of these years. Let's talk about the uh, the Pribiloths and the fur seals, halibut, and snow crab, the canary in the coal mine, they called themselves. Right. So I, like you said, I, I made it a point to go out into the field in each place I traveled to with scientists who had been studying it for, usually it was between 20 and 30 years, sometimes more. Like Thomas Lovejoy in the Amazon was 50 years plus. But my point is I wanted to be speaking with scientists and local people who had a long-term intimate connection with the land. And so going out into uh, uh, the Bering Sea and the Pribilof Islands and St. Paul Island uh, and looking at specifically the fur seals there, uh, they were on a dramatic decline and they were a, a species there like so many in that uh, bioregion that because of warming oceans and acidification and warming atmospheres in that area, because most people listening is probably aware that the, the northern regions in the Arctic are warming twice as fast on average as the rest of the planet, and this is right below the Arctic Circle. And they are seeing a dramatic decline in these species. There were like huge die-offs of puffin, uh, other types of birds, of, uh, and, and fur seals. When I went out there, I was very amazed to see these rookeries with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of furs, these big giant fur seals. I was really blown away. But then when I was talking with the elders, um, I've interviewed several elders for that chapter, and each one of them uh, was extremely upset at the, the dramatically lowered number of these fur seals that I was, you know, talking like, wow, look, there's, you know, six or 700 in this one rookery alone. And one man literally got angry and slammed his fist on the table, and he said, no, this is nothing. This is nothing. There used to be over a million here, and this is just nothing. And they're extremely upset and worried because as these species go away, as uh, right along with that goes cultures, traditions, um, spiritual practices of the indigenous people that have that deep, intimate relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I was astounded that that uh, there there had been a two degree Celsius warm up of the Gulf of Alaska, which was recorded in 1975. Right, right. I interviewed Bruce Wright. He was scientist is scientist for the Alaska Pribilof Islands Association. Uh, works with a lot of the native groups out there, but also had worked with NOAA and uh, some government, uh, uh, the, the Tony Mills uh, gover government, governor uh, administration back when he was governor of that state and numerous other very, very high posts. And he had been tracking the climate crisis and the impacts up there for that long. And he was deeply, deeply concerned with what was happening and the dramatic amount of warming to where literally he's watching an entire 
shift in the biosystem up there, is particularly the oceanic system, where you tweak the temperature that much, which, you know, two, two degrees C might not sound like a whole lot, but we have to remember that nature over millennia, millennia, millions and millions of years has fine-tuned itself to, to really be at maximum potential within a very, very small uh, basically frame of, of temperature difference. And so if you tweak that just a little bit, it would take nature a long, long time to try to readjust to that. And what we have done by introducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere as rapidly as we have is we have come in and basically just hit the whole thing with a sledgehammer. And now we're just watching the results. And so we're seeing these major fish die-offs, major bird die-offs up there. And Bruce Wright was very, very alarmed in watching them even back in the 70s and then on into the 80s and 90s, regularly having to shut down fisheries and then deal with angry fishermen and certainly uh, indigenous folks where who depend on it for subsistence living and their livelihoods as well. And uh, he'd been having to do this for decades already. And so, yeah, he's, he's intensely alarmed at the, the, the contemporary situation. But when, but for him, this was old hat. He said, "He said, look, yeah, we've been dealing with it, with this now for almost fifty years." Now, the bottom line uh, is that the the Eskimos, the, the Aleut culture, based on sea life, is dying. The food web is literally broken. It is, and I went there specifically to illustrate that because St. Paul is a it's a small island. There's only about 234 year-round residents there. When I was there. Um, like so many indigenous cultures, you know, they're losing younger generations who are going to bigger cities and going off to college, et cetera. And there's fewer and fewer people there to try to carry on uh, their way of living anyway, but then insert the climate crisis and where it's made everything exponentially more difficult. And, and that way of life is very much in jeopardy. It's, it's being eroded rapidly and, and going away just like the glaciers. All right, let's talk about coral. You call your your uh, chapter Farewell Coral because you pretty much have said your farewells to, to coral. 80% of all living coral in the Caribbean is gone. Uh, you you think that all coral on Earth will probably be gone by, by 2050. Some of this coral is 20 million years old and it's never bleached before and 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 now we're talking about it being gone by 2050 uh uh 22 years before you revisited it uh you you swam what what is known as the blue corner in uh, the great barrier reef and you went back what you see well the those actually two different things the blue corner is in palau in micronesia and on the same oh, side i did go to Right, Palau, and then and then over to Australia. But uh, to Palau uh, was an interesting place in that it. I had been to both places twenty years previously, and starting with Palau, the Blue Corners is a world famous dive site, uh, just stunningly spectacular, big wall dive, uh, all kinds of marine life, um, a really amazing place. And I'd been there before. And it was just teeming with giant schools of barracuda and all kinds of fish life and, and uh, the coral. It was basically an overstimulation of the senses when you would dive there. Just, you know, huge, huge fan corals coming out of the wall, 
that you're you're floating right off of and and just uh just stunning plays and then when i went back there to work on the book and uh, diving with uh marine biologists uh i was actually rather shocked by how quiet it was uh the first the most obvious thing was basically the lack of sea life there was obviously still fish and sharks and things like that, but, but dramatically lower numbers than there used to be. And this, uh, one of the scientists I interviewed there uh, spoke to the same thing. He said that was what was giving him some of the most alarm. And, you know, a lot of that's from overfishing, but a lot of it was from, you know, tweaking the temperature of the water and the atmosphere and, and causing disruptions in the food web. Uh, and, and he was very alarmed by that, as were the marine biologists I was with. And then also the coral, that this is a place that's basically out in the middle of the ocean. Um, it's this small island group. It's surrounded by deep, cold water ocean. And yet, even there, they had had major, major bleaching events. Not as many as in other places that are where they're not surrounded by the deep ocean, but alarming nonetheless. But it was a place also, because of that, will probably have coral longer than many other places. And when we talk about the uh, 2050 as possibly being the year that we don't have any more functional coral reefs. This doesn't mean that there won't be some kind of corals. There will be some kind of corals that will adapt, persist. But the, as one scientist at University of Hawaii said, uh, the days of the National Geographic underwater films with the majestic rainbow colors of the coral reefs teeming with fish and all of that, those are gone. And certainly by 2050, according to a NOAA study that came out several years ago, and this is where, why I cite that, that year, that, that study said that if we continue on at the three that we're on with emissions and not cutting back and not making changes uh, and the rate of loss, uh, we will most likely not have functional coral reefs by 2050. And I would argue today pretty confidently that um, that, that is – grossly conservative and i think it's going to be much sooner than that because not only have we not changed things we have accelerated on all fronts whether we talk about emissions or overfishing or yeah all fronts and so i think it's going to be much much sooner than that and that's what i've seen and when i went back to the great barrier reef that's exactly what i saw there the day i got there they were just starting a major, major uh, bleaching event. It was 2017. And then the next year they had yet another major bleaching event. And uh, that's why even leading Australian scientists studying the Great Barrier Reef have declared it to be in its terminal stage. And it essentially won't be much left of it inside of 10 years. Holy moly. Uh, somebody that you uh, and I'm not sure if it was if this is your quote or or someone else's, but uh, they they say right now the largest ecosystem on Earth is undergoing its death throes and no one is there to watch it. Mm-hmm. And I know someone else, so one of the, one of the people you interviewed said that he was scrambling to see the world in the condition it's in now because it's never going to be this good again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. These were two gentlemen that I went out with on the reef with on that trip. Uh, One was an American who moved over there, saw the reef and fell in love with it and had lived over there 
30, 40 years. And another one was an Australian marine scientist who was saying that. And they were working together to try to get as many people and scientists as they could out there to appreciate and study the reef and actually see because that was exactly their concern, as I think is, is that of so many people working in, in ocean-related work, is that uh, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And people, uh, you know, most people who don't ever go see a coral reef, let alone scuba diver snorkel, uh, you know, they might hear about this stuff and it might raise alarm, but it's another thing to go see it. And I, I that happened to me. I'd been to the Great Barrier Reef. And when I went in the 90s, it was in uh, quite darn good shape, at least compared to when I went back in 2017. And at that point, literally going in areas and, and dropping in the water right on top of an area that was completely bleached out where it was just white, which means the coral is starving. It has had to eject the algae. It gives it the majestic colors. Because when the, when the waters or that algae becomes toxic and it will kill the coral, so it ejects it and that buys it a few weeks of life. And if it, the water cools back down in time, then the coral can take the algae, its protein source back and, and persist. But of course, that's not happening. And so you're having these major coral bleaching events, which, you know, bleaching would happen from time to time naturally, but usually not more than uh, every 10, 20 years. And it takes at least 10 years to fully recover from a major bleaching event. But now at the Great Barrier Reef, like so many other reefs around the world, they're happening almost every single year. As you swam away from the uh, Great Barrier Reef, you, 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 you pretty much knew it was the last time you were going to see it. You said goodbye. That must have, that must have been emotional. I did, and I, I wrote about this because it was a, a, a really personal and, and deeply impactful moment for me that we, we had spent the day going to different locations, and I was, you know, we'd get in the boat, we'd, we'd move to a different location, and I'd interview the scientist I was with, and, and then we'd drop back in the water and go check out another location, and we just, we weren't finding anywhere that didn't have some bleaching effects, even places out on the very, very far edge of the reef, which is right nearby the, the, the deeper, colder ocean, even out there it was bleaching in, in places. And so by the end of the day, I just knew that, that you know, that the rapidity of the bleaching and the acceleration coupled with the fact that I knew I, odds are it wasn't going to come back, um, I knew it was probably my last time. And, 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 and so I went out, I was snorkeling, and I just – had a little time. It was late afternoon. I knew we'd be heading back into shore soon. And I just started diving down just to, just to be with it, just literally just be with it as long as I could. And I was diving down, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet sometimes and just holding my breath and staying down as long as I could. And then uh, one of those, I, I, I got about three of those in and then I heard the boat sound the horn to come on back to get ready to go. And so I knew it was going to be my, so I did one more deep dive and then came up and just, you know, realized that I, while I was looking at, you know, what was left of the coral and appreciating it, that I, I realized I, you know, there were tears in my mask and I realized that, yeah, I, even in my body, I, I really could understand and feel what was, what was happening there. And as hard as that was, I'm very grateful for the experience because another thing that I think all of us, uh, at least I've had to get better at doing in this time is acknowledging endings. 
in knowing that, you know, I've had the privilege to go see this majestic place. And it was very important for me personally to get to say goodbye to it. Your 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 chapter, The Coming Atlantis, is aptly named because as the ice leaves, water comes. Uh, it's already baked into the system. Uh, uh, here's a quote. Even if, even if we miraculously solve the emission problem now, we still have decades of impacts coming our way. Uh, you say the Everglades. Uh, well, I mean, it's you say uh, uh, it's it's obvious the Everglades will disappear in our lifetime. Easily, yes. And so I I uh, have a chapter on sea level rise, and I I spent the bulk of that in South Florida uh, interviewing scientists. And uh, one man I spoke with at length was Dr. Harold Wanless with University of Miami Coral Gables, and he's. Uh, 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 has been studying uh, uh, sea level rise for much of his life and is uh, intensely alarmed at the climate crisis. And he he is talking about, uh, as had Paul Ehrlich, who was co-author of one study that I cited uh, in that chapter, actually, that they study paleoclimatology and paleo shifts uh, uh, over long periods of history and abrupt shifts that have happened before uh, during previous abrupt warming events in Earth's history. And this one, of course, far, far more accelerated than any of the previous warming events in Earth's history. And and he basically said, look, we, uh, Dr. Wanless said this, which is in alignment with one of the studies that I cite in the book that Paul Ehrlich was part of, that um, it is not out of the realm of the possibility to see uh, 10 feet of sea level rise uh, by by 2050, not talking about 2100, but when you look at the uh, exponential changes that are happening and the acceleration of ice loss from not just above from uh, a warmer atmosphere, but uh, the warming ocean is melting things from below uh, in, in our Antarctica and specifically the Western Antarctic ice shelf, which, you know, huge parts of that we're seeing come off even in just recent months. It's every other month you see a report of another iceberg releasing the size of Manhattan, uh, some of them even bigger. Uh, and, and this is just, you know, the, that area and Greenland are shedding ice far beyond worst-case projections of even five years ago. Uh, right now, and these are not projections we're talking about, but the, but the present observations, i.e. what's happening in front of our eyes right now, is outpacing previous worst-case projections by huge amounts. And so because of that, Dr. Wanless said, uh, you know, at, at the end of that uh, time with him, um, he said, look, the, the Earth, as it's gone in and out of glaciation periods, we've seen, a, 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 you know, moments in history where, uh, the, the atmospheric CO2 would increase, say, 100 parts per million. And with every part per, 100 part per million increase, we've seen uh, a, a, approximately 100 feet of corresponding sea level rise. So every time that huh. happened in the Earth's warmed that much, we've seen that. And so I, you know, we're sitting there, we're nearing the end of my interview with him in his office, and, and I said, so I, I basically just did the quick math, and it was, uh, so we've, We've basically added, uh, at the time, I think we were at 4, 410 ppm above pre-industrial baselines of CO2. 
and you know I subtracted out the pre-industrial level of and I came up with a figure of roughly 130 part per million I said so Dr. Wamas we've added 130 roughly 130 part per million CO2 to the atmosphere does does that mean we have 130 feet baked into the system already and he just nodded yes and so if we think about that you uh uh, and we continue to add more every year. Now it's actually, you know, you could probably tack on 5, 10 feet to that, depending on what current CO2 levels. I think it's 415 or 417 now, somewhere right around in there. And so that means the matter of injury has already been done, and we're just waiting for the earth organism to continue to exhibit the harm. And this harm that we're talking about specifically means seas rising to the point where every coastal city on the planet uh, is, is, is going to be submerged. The question is not if, it's when. And the question is, you know, are pe- what are people doing to adapt? Uh, building seawalls and, and things like this or raising structures 10 feet, yeah, that's going to buy you a little bit of time, but it's really not going to do anything in the long run. No. So think about, uh, and this is where, at the risk of getting off topic a little bit, Think about the implications, and this is what Dr. Wanless spoke about also. He said, look, we can just keep ignoring the problem, and we're going to have a panic, chaos, uncontrolled of people fleeing the coast for higher ground. And then what's going to happen to the places when they go there? Are there going to be jobs? Is there going to be enough food? And then look at what's being left behind, nuclear power plants, toxic waste dumps, oil refineries things like this that have to be cleaned uh, I, up and mitigated. I'm glad you brought that up because you mentioned something in, in your book that, that I, you know, that I, we just don't consider. And I have such little, such, uh, I have no faith anymore in, in the human race. You talk about how important it is, no, knowing that these places are going to end up underwater, how important it is to clean them, cleaning the land before inundation because of all of the toxics that we're going to be leaving behind. We're, we won't even do that. Right, right. And that's, you know, that's that's a thing where if we were really going to behave accordingly in, in so far as being mindful of what our actions impacts are on future generations, that's the first thing we would be doing right now is, you know, looking at the science, being very clear and sober about this and saying, look, okay, we have uh, X amount of sea, uh, sea level rise baked into the system, so we need to start behaving accordingly. Let's start cleaning these things up, closing this stuff down, moving archives and hospitals and other important things to higher ground, um, start having a government-managed orderly retreat, uh, you know, help people reestablish themselves somewhere else. I mean, that would be the same rational, moral thing to do. Uh, we can't well we can't even stop burning out. fossil fuels knowing that they're they're right. what's poisoning us and causing all of this. I mean it's it's madness. Right. It it is. It is. And and I think that's why, you know, there's from that perspective you have a very apt title for your show because it's utter knowing the science, when you really get into the science you see how deep into this crisis we really are. Um um any kind of business as usual behavior is completely insane and deeply immoral. I think you called it bearing witness to ecocide. 
But let's talk about the forest, the fate of the forests. Hey, by the way, do you, uh, uh, first of all, the point is that the hotter it gets, the less trees can survive. But but you uh, you you bought five acres of forest up where you live in in Washington, right? Uh, to, just to protect it. You still got that? I do. It's where I live. Yes, it was just one small thing that I could do. And, you know, cause I like so many people have most of my life really taken trees for granted. And, and, you know, now them kind of being the symbol of, of environmental movements for decades is, is not by accident. You know, the, the critical role they play in, in absorbing and pulling, scrubbing CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it. Uh, and, you know, literally today still planting a tree is, is a great thing to do or, or it's, you know, probably second only to protecting what forests already exist if you're, if you're looking at something to do to help the planet. And, um, you know, it was important though, for me to really dive into the, the science of this and in, in this book. And so I went to uh, New Mexico and I interviewed Dr. Craig Allen, who's a U.S. Geological Survey research ecologist, um, and uh, he's been working in this field since 1989 at uh, Bandelier National Monument there, and he's authored uh, numerous really important scientific studies and co-authored many as well, talking about uh, uh, the importance of trees and, and how how delicate they are, actually, and, and how much they're impacted by the climate crisis. And he talks about how um, it's not just drought, but even just slight tweaks to the atmospheric temperature has very, very dramatic uh, impacts on uh, these trees. And, and studying them in the southwest where he does, he refers to them as being uh, a laboratory, if you will, because trees there have already lived. They're already living right up against the limits of where they can live as far as having just enough moisture and within certain temperature thresholds. And when you make slight tweaks to that at all, you immediately will lose vast swaths of forest. They're already seeing that where he is, um, and uh, it's really a harbinger of things to come for forests around the globe. And, um, and thanks to he, uh, climate he, change, we the, the the there are now beetles in the sequoias. Right. That was another place that I went, and it was a very you know, so the sequoias, uh, by by mass, are the biggest tree on the planet, and uh, some of the oldest. There's there's some trees in sequoia that are over 3,000 years old, and they're that they're that uh, resilient because they are huge, because they um, have very very thick bark that's designed to repel pests and even help them survive wildfires. Um, but when I was literally out in the field with uh, USGS scientists as well as some other scientists, we went, we, we went, they took me to an area where there were three sequoias. Uh, a couple of them had already fallen down. And while we were there, they discovered that the, the reason for death of these sequoias was most likely a particular beetle. And the beetles had never been able to penetrate the tree's bark before because it's chemically designed to keep them away as well as extremely thick. But the beetles were there and able to get in there anyway because the drought in California, as we're seeing right now in real time, 
is have been so severe that it weakened the trees to a point where now they're susceptible to these beetles. So now even you know these uh, these these monarchs, you know these these very very old, huge huge trees are now in grave grave risk. Uh, I think it's probably just a matter of time, unfortunately. And and then right now, literally as we speak live, uh, California is in a grave grave drought, uh, seeing amidst a huge heat wave, major water shortages, minimal snowpack that's basically already gone. So. Uh, it's it's actually challenging to talk about it in that context because, you know, again, the sequoias like the Great Barrier Reef, um, they're this um, amazing part of the planet that is in grave danger now. You mentioned the hydropower at Lake Mead. Did you, did you catch the story yesterday that uh, they're actually going to shut down the uh, the hydro plant at Oroville in a couple of months because the water's gone down so much? I didn't see that aspect of it, right? And so this is, you know, it's another one of these kind of offshoots of everything that we're talking about, these cascading effects that, you know, it, it's one thing to talk about in kind of, abs- it might seem abstract to talk about, oh, there's reduced snowpack and what happens when glaciers recede and you tweak the temperatures this much or what happens to the trees. But all of these things we're talking about now, we're seeing direct human impact. And so I know with, like Lake Mead, for example, uh, 90% of Las Vegas's power comes from there. So what happens when that is not available? What happens when all the places in California no longer have that power amidst a record-breaking heat wave, amidst a drought? And so uh, we're, I think we're seeing and we'll see even just this summer – um, how a lot of these climate impacts directly translate to um, huge, huge costs to humans, both financially and uh, in the health realm. Yeah, let's go back to Alaska. Uh, you, you, you're, you're, well, actually, no. Let's let's talk briefly about the Amazon. You, you, you went to the Amazon, and and it, it called it the pump, the heart of the world. And it is one of the two largest rainforests on Earth under attack. It is. And it's, it's, it's the largest forest on the planet. And it is, uh, it's an area that, you know, especially over Bolsonaro, who's uh, you know, prime minister or president of Brazil, has been referred to as the tropical Trump. Uh, guy is basically a, a maniac. And uh, yep. the amount of, logging and burning that's going on there is off the charts and uh-huh. uh it's 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 a place of extremes now where you've got it vacillating from drought to flood from drought to flood and huge amounts of the the rainforest is is being lost and in fact it's it's had drought impacts uh severe enough that there was one uh, year where it, there was so much of it in drought or burning up in wildfires that the Amazon, which normally is a carbon sink, there's so much biology there, so many trees, so many plants, that it pulls a huge amount of CO2 out of the atmosphere, a critical CO2 scrub for the planet. But it's, there's been uh, time periods now where there's been so much drought and wildfire there it's actually become a net source of CO2 instead of absorbing it and pulling it out of the atmosphere. And in fact, there's, there was one time period where the Amazon itself 
was emitting more CO2 than all the autos in the U.S. and China combined. And so, uh, again, oh, that not even to speak not even to speak of the uh, importance of the biological diversity there. It's the most biologically diverse place on the planet, and you know we're we're basically human impact is is annihilating species there before we even know they exist. I mean, to give you an idea of how rich of a place it is, I went I I talked with one scientist who had been out on an expedition of, with other scientists. They got helicoptered into a remote region, and they discovered 80-plus um, new species in, in just 30 days. And they were still studying what they found and still even discovering newer species. So they were already aware that it was already endangered, and so many of them that we're losing before we even know that they exist. And so if yeah. you want to talk about direct human impacts, how many of our drugs come from the Amazon, uh, what happens when we take that place out of, uh, you know, basically a functioning ecosystem? Um, what, uh, what impact? What other impacts is that going to have on us? Okay, briefly, let's let's head back past Alaska because uh, uh, all it sounds like all of the Alaska towns and villages are built right up against the water, so they're all going to have to move, right? Well, many of them, yes, especially up in the Arctic where basically everything on the coast because of the combo of thawing permafrost and eroding coastline from bigger storms, which are made bigger by loss of sea ice, so you have bigger waves now. Um, yes, the dozens and dozens of villages are going to have to move, and in fact, some uh, already are. Uh, well, there's only a couple that have funding to be moved. But these are some of our first uh, internal climate refugees within the United States. And um, not coincidentally, they just happen to be native uh, because, you know, it's as usual, it's more the vulnerable populations uh, that are, uh, are the first and hardest impacted by the climate crisis. So, uh, yeah, when I was up there, it was around three dozen villages that were going to have to be moved. Uh, now, as I understand it, it's over 50, and that number just keeps growing. Whoa. Now, now let's talk about permafrost and methane. Uh, uh, the, 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 it's very clear from the way you laid it out and explained it that the methane from permafrost could actually change everything in the world in a matter of minutes. That's right. There's, there's, uh, a Russian scientist who was studying at University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, who released a study warning of uh, the possibility of deep sea permafrost, basically in the shallow, not not deep sea, but the shallow Arctic seabeds are are full of methane hydrates. And she warned of abrupt releases of that, that there's vast stores of it subsea that if we if we keep warming the seas as we are, uh, that and the sea ice keeps retreating as it is, that we could see abrupt releases of what she calls 50 gigaton bursts of this subsea methane that could come up. And methane uh, on a 10-year time scale is 85 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than is CO2. And there's enough in there as well as methane equivalent in uh, uh, terrestrial permafrost, meaning uh, above the sea permafrost, 
that uh, on Earth that uh, enough of that could be released to literally add uh, one to two C to Earth warming in extremely short amounts of time, which would, uh, just to give you an idea how much that is, there's the potential to literally double the amount of warming potential in the atmosphere in a very, very abrupt amount of time. And, And this is why when you look at the alarming rate of warming in the Arctic, why it is not not just scary but extremely dangerous and you know i quote a research scientist for nasa dr charles miller who uh several years ago wrote in a study that permafrost soils permafrost soils are already warming faster than arctic air temperatures as much as 2.7 to 4.5 degrees fahrenheit in just the last 30 years and that's accelerating so you have both the subsea permafrost threats threat but also uh, the the uh, loss, the, the thawing of permafrost and the, the release of methane equivalent uh, on land that is already very much uh, underway. In fact, in that in the NASA study that I just cited, uh, they were finding um, methane levels in wilderness areas of the Arctic in the winter that were already beyond methane levels in major American cities. You you quote Ireland's President Michael Higgins at a biodiversity conference in Dublin, quote, around the world, the library of life that has evolved over billions of years, our biodiversity, is being destroyed, poisoned, polluted, invaded, fragmented, plundered, drained, and burned at a rate not seen in human history. If we were coal miners, we'd be up to our waists in dead canaries. Yeah, I I really felt like that quote um, really well articulated back to the feeling that you and I expressed at the very beginning of this conversation where, you know, when you start talking the gravity of the crisis that we're in and looking specifically at all these different areas as we just have uh it's it's intensely alarming and i think you're gonna we need to feel that in our bones and it's only from that place can we start to respond accordingly and looking at the fact that huge amounts of the biosphere are really truly in a a type of hospice situation and so we need to be intensely present for that and we need to be aware of what's happening and then we need to start behaving accordingly, and that means starting with getting our priorities uh, very clear about what our priorities are. Hospice situation almost sounds euphemistic in a way uh, because uh, it, it doesn't fully impart in, in, in that, that no one comes out of a hospice. They go in to die. Uh, here's another quote from you. Uh, I thought about how it's over, how it's already too late about how any real struggle to stop or even mitigate what was already upon us and what we were doing felt pointless. Was that before you got to the hope-free part? (laughs) It absolutely was, you know, and and all of this information forced me philosophically. I literally had to find a new ontology. I had to find new ground to stand on because – I struggled a lot with depression and rage uh, off and on all through working on this book. And what I think the thing to, to sum up really where it all led me 
was I was talking with uh, an elder of indigenous heritage and I quote him towards the end of the book and, and he shared with me, he said, look, uh, Western society kind of believes, well, you have rights. What are my rights? You know, uh, we're born with these certain rights. He said, but that's a little different because most of indigenous pers- around the world believes we're born with primary obligations and there's two of them. One, uh, to serve the planet and take care of the planet, and two, to serve uh, future generations. And so for me to hear that, I had to shift over into that kind of thinking that no matter how dire things are and no matter how grave things become, no matter what, I have these two primary obligations. And they are not contingent upon results. They are contingent upon, am I willing to take those on and behave accordingly? And today, those are really the fundamental driving force of, of why I get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. All I know is, is how to do is, is what I'm doing. My paltry little website and these interviews, trying to get other humans to listen and understand. What, what about you? Where do you go from here? Well, I, I think that what you're doing is is uh, extremely commendable. I mean, it's what I did until you know, and I still do it in my own way, in a sense that I, I've, I've just finished a manuscript of a book with the the man that I just mentioned, and uh, where we're interviewing different indigenous people from around the country, and one person from Canada on their perspectives on all of this and what each of them are doing, and and in that way, each of these people to me were kind of a model of how to live out of those two primary obligations of service. And, and just really, that's what I do. And then I also continue to go out into the back country and up into the mountains to really keep perspective and, and just to be with the earth and appreciate her while she, in the state that she's in today, because uh, uh, knowing what we know, it, it, you know, it, I, I use a saying with the climate as I used to when I was reporting from Iraq when things were disintegrating there is today is better than tomorrow. And so, you know, being in a hospice situation doesn't mean that you you love that person less. It means you love them as much as you can while they're still here. And so I feel like that's what also I end up am, am essentially doing. Well, the best of luck to you, Dar. I definitely want us to stay in touch. Thank you, Dan. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. The name of the book is The End of Ice of real changes that have already occurred on our planet as a result of our own greed, ignorance, and stupidity, all of which we are simply continuing to inflict every day upon the only nest we will ever have, madness. I'm going to end this episode of Suicide Earth with a direct quote from the author, Dar Jamail. Quote, Writing this book is my attempt to bear witness to what we have done to the earth. I want to make my own amends to the earth in the precious time we have left, however long that may be. I go into my work wholeheartedly, knowing that it is unlikely to turn anything around. And when the tide does not turn, my heart breaks over and over again as the reports of each succeeding loss continue to come in. The grief for the planet does not get easier. Returning to this again and again, I think, is the greatest service I can offer in these times. I am committed in my bones to being with the earth, no matter what, to the end.